The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And welcome to the Disability Law Show. Back for another week. Good to have you along as well. John Schools here. Martin Willems always doing the heavy lifting and giving you the information you need and willing to have that conversation with you outside the hour of the show. How do you do it? one 821 5900 Help at ca. That's the email address we're going to go through very shortly. And for uh, any other information, in fact, if you want to know if you uh, qualify, if uh, you know you possibly have a, uh, a beef or a claim with an insurance company as far as disability is concerned, you can go to pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. Pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. Check that out. It's free. And it's anonymous, but uh, we're going to get into our show right away here, Martin. Uh, week that was, case of the day. What have you been working on, brother? Yes, thanks, John. So this is something that I've spoken about before in some limited circumstances, but it came up again this week, and I think it's very helpful to people who are listening to the show to understand what the ramifications are if you do have a disabling illness, but you struggle to carry on working, and then to a point where you can no longer work. How may that affect you? So in this circumstance, I've used the phrase that people sometimes work themselves out of a claim. What does that mean? Remember what we always say, a disability policy is a contract and that contract has terms and provisions, rights and obligations. In order to be eligible for coverage, that doesn't mean eligible for the payment of benefits. It means eligible to have the opportunity to make a claim. You have to qualify as what is described as an eligible employee or in the terms of a long-term disability policy, you need to be actively at work, which is a defined term. It's a long and maybe complicated way to describe and to say that you have to be working a minimum amount of hours in order to have, and importantly, to maintain coverage. So it depends on the policy that you have, that your employer negotiated with the insurance company. I'll use an example. To be an eligible employee or to be considered actively at work, your policy may provide that you have to be working a minimum amount of hours, be it 20 hours or be it 30 hours per week. Some policies only require 20 hours per week. Others may require that you have to be working 30 hours per week. And I'll use this as the example of the issue that pops up every now and again. Somebody may be working full-time, in other words, they're working 37.5 or 40 hours. They've been working like this for maybe two years, three years or longer. Then they develop an illness or a condition or they're injured, but they try to do what is in their minds the right thing. They carry on working, their condition gets worse to the extent that they decide that they have to reduce their hours go down from 37.5 or 40 hours to 20 hours a week, carry on working like that for a period of time, and then maybe reduce it even to 15 hours per week, carry on working like that for a year, and then find that the condition is progressive, cannot manage it anymore, despite all types of treatment, despite job modifications and accommodations being put in place, and finally stop working. Then they want to submit a claim for long-term disability benefits. They may have to qualify for the elimination period. In other words, for the three first three or four months, they may either get short-term or not be paid and have to go through a medical insurance, get to LTD, submit a claim, and the insurance company then says, oh no, 
you were not working the minimum amount of hours, so you are not actively at work, as that term is defined, or you're not an eligible employee. Right. Even though you started off work as an eligible employee, being actively at work because you were working the minimum amount of hours, you were working full time. But then you reduced your hours, and that reduction carried on over a period of time, so to the point that after a year, now you're working less, and you cannot do it any longer. The insurer says, no, you are not actively at work. In other words, you don't have coverage. And the fact that you've been working before shows that, that you were able to work. And then the claim gets denied. It is a very frustrating and often shocking and demoralizing uh, realization on the part of the person making the claim. Because in their minds, they did everything that they could have. Where somebody else may have just stopped working. They tried to push themselves to carry on working as long as they could. And to some extent, they're almost being penalized for that. So it's a difficult thing to manage. I've had cases like this before where we've taken it on and assisted our clients in trying to get a settlement. And we were successful in getting a settlement. But it really depends on the circumstances. So to anyone who is listening, if you find that you are unable to work, or more importantly, that your capacity to work is being diminished because of a medical illness or a condition. And in consideration and discussions with your doctor, it is recommended that you reduce your hours. Make sure that you have a discussion with your employer about that and whether or not maybe at that time yeah. you should consider submitting a claim to the insurance company. Even though you're still working, you may qualify for benefits based on what is called a rehabilitation program. There may even be a partial disability provision in your policy. But the last thing that you want to do is do what has happened here. Carry on working for a period of time, reducing your hours on an ongoing basis. And when you finally find that you've worked yourself to the bone and that you simply cannot carry on, and the extent of the work that you've done over the past year has significantly worsened your condition on a progressive basis, then find that you cannot make a claim because the insurer will say, well, you no longer have coverage because you went, you dipped below that minimum threshold. So again, make sure you have a discussion with your doctor. Make sure you have a discussion with the employer. If you are going to reduce your hours, make sure that it does not go below the minimum threshold. And if it does, submit a claim for LTD benefits or short-term benefits and then right. LTD benefits. But don't make this mistake where you push yourself, push yourself, push yourself. Because in this instance, I think it may have also been incumbent on the employer to advise the person making this claim that, look, you're reducing your hours, we're going to have to accommodate you, maybe you should consider applying for benefits as well. Because it is such an unfortunate circumstance to be penalized for trying to do the right thing and pushing yourself to work. I am going to assist this person, but I know it is going to be a more difficult scenario and a difficult way to proceed. So always have a discussion with your doctor and make sure that the employer advises you when you, ha when you want to have a look at what that policy says. What is the minimum amount of hours that you need to work in order to maintain coverage? And don't just simply ask coverage, ask about coverage, ask about long-term disability coverage. Yeah. How many hours at a minimum do you need to work in order to maintain that coverage? 
I think a savvy employee, I don't know what the workplace was, but I think a savvy employee would be the only ones who would say, hey, you might want to apply for these benefits. You might want to do this. I mean, if it's, you know what I mean? I think if it's like a mom and pop shop, they're going to have no clue in that regard. So to your point, I think you got to cover all the angles on your own and do your own homework, right? Most definitely. And it's interesting you making that comment because you would think what you've just said would be the case. And for many instances, it is. Yeah. But I've seen, and in this particular one, it is not that. It is a very big organization where I think somebody dropped the ball. This discussion should have been had, especially looking out for the employees' mm -hmm. best interests. Um, so for the most part, yes, it would be that. But in this case, it wasn't, surprisingly. Let's get into our first email. I appreciate you sending these along. By the way, you can contribute to the show as well. They'll get it answered anyway by Martin and his team, even not during this hour, but help at disabilityrights.ca. says, guys have been on LTD for one year and have just been approved for CPP disability. Prior to getting approved, I was put on a rehab program from the insurance company, stating that it was an obligation to my contract with them. Now the insurance has been modified or notified rather by me that I was approved for CPP disability. They're still forcing me to continue the rehab in hopes of getting you uh, back or getting back to gainful work. Can they do this and how do I get them to you know, back off, get them off my back? I, I don't really care about the benefits. This is only causing excess stress. Well, it's a tough situation and I understand I've spoken to clients before when they say to me, this is so stressful, I just don't care anymore. I don't want to deal with this. I don't even care about the benefits. I think that's a statement that is made out of desperation because it is becoming so stressful that the insurance company is forcing this them to participate, to participate in a program and to put up these obstacles. Um, that they just want to let things be. But obviously in the real world, in the reality is, you do care about those benefits because you don't have any other financial means to survive. So don't lose hope, don't just let things be. Um, if the insurance company is pushing you into something that you cannot do or that your doctor is not recommending, please reach out to us. I say, you know, you say this every time, John, and I say it as well. We offer free consultations throughout the country, other than in Quebec and the territories. Uh, we will review the policy. We will review your personal circumstances, and then you can make an informed decision. But going back to this question, you've been approved for CPP disability, which means that the government, the federal government through Service Canada is accepting that you have an illness or a condition that is both number one severe, number two prolonged, and number three to the extent that you cannot perform the duties of any gainful occupation. It's, it, it's a significant acknowledgement on the part of the government. Having said that, insurance companies work differently. They will say we assess the claim differently. You're not at the any occupation phase in your policy yet. You're one year in. The provisions under the policy do allow the insurance company, for the most part, to have you attend, in a good faith manner, rehabilitation efforts. How do you deal with this and how do you get them off your back? You're in a relationship now and they're relying on the terms of the policy. If what is being proposed by the insurance company is unreasonable or has the potential of worsening your condition or leading to an exacerbation and letting you lose all gains that you may have had before. If that is the situation, have a discussion with your doctor and have your doctor put in writing why it is that you should not be participating in this program and what the risks are if you did. Because rehabilitation programs 
must be, in my mind, on the part of the insurance company, be instated in a good faith uh, manner in the order to allow you to get some functional uh, improvements. But if the the situation is such that it's not going to work, then it really shouldn't be done. But have that discussion with the doctor. See if the doctor will put it in a writing. And if they still insist, have a discussion with one of us at our firm. And uh, that'll get us into our uh, our first break here. And that number, by the way, uh, Martin, teen that up nicely, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. You want? Thank you for the email, but you want to carry on with the phone call. That's the number you want to use, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. We'll get another email coming down here and send yours along at any time too. Help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue after a short break right here, the Disability Law Show. Hang in. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And welcome back to the Disability Law Show. Martin Willems is your guy. Reach out anytime. He's got a good team behind him as well. He chooses his people wisely. one 821 5900 is how you make that phone call. A couple different ways to ask questions uh, during this hour of the show, of course. And then beyond this, there's help at disabilityrights.ca and a website which is free and anonymous. You can ask your questions there. It's got a searchable database, so maybe a question like yours has been asked and answered in the past. You can use that feature. It's my disability questions.com okay next email says guys if the insurer says i have to take antidepressants based on what their ime doctor says or i will be cut off can they do that i'm seeing a psychiatrist and i've been doing so for five years i've tried six different antidepressants and these medications did not work at all some had significant side effects and others made my condition worse i don't believe the ime doctor even commented on that i don't want to be forced to take medications against my with the wishes of my doctor and his recommendations what do you guys say okay so remember when i said this is a contract in other mm-hmm. words the policy is a contract it has rights and obligations what the insurance company is doing here they're relying on one of those provisions in the policy and that they're saying you have to be under the appropriate care for the specific condition and you know when they say appropriate care it often would say within the insurance company's opinion mm-hmm. or as is accepted in the medical sphere like what is accepted treatment for this condition in the medical community so that's what they're relying on when they say that they're going to terminate your con- your claim or your payment of your benefits if you do not do what their IME doctor says. Do we agree with that? Well, let the IME doctor understand that you have been seeing a psychiatrist for five years. In other words, that psychiatrist has the benefit of having observed you throughout those five, those five years and has been the one who has prescribed you six different antidepressants. So obviously this has been tried, various medications have been tried and there have been significant side effects. Now somebody new steps in who sees you maybe for an hour if that much or maybe two. This person, this psychiatrist may not be aware of your history, has never met you before and is now suggesting that these are the things that you should do in the context and in the face of somebody who has been seeing you for five years. My, su- my suggestion always is to follow the recommended advice of your treating doctor. In this circumstance, I would say insist that the IME report 
is sent to your psychiatrist by the insurance company. They may say to you, we're not going to give it to you, but they have to give it to your doctor. So insist that that report is sent to your doctor. Have your doctor, in other words, your psychiatrist, review the IME report by the insurer's psychiatrist and then have a discussion with your doctor. Does your doctor agree with this? It doesn't sound like he does. And if the doctor does not agree with it, have the doctor put in writing why the doctor disagrees with this provision that the insurance company is insisting on that you have to follow their doctor's advice. I don't agree with that at all. If the doctor doesn't agree with the advice, in other words, the doctor can put in writing the history, the fact that you've tried six different medications, the significant side effects that you experienced, and why within this doctor's informed opinion, and it's important, this doctor is in, in a position to give an informed opinion, why it is not recommended and ill-advised for you to take other medications suggested by this person who saw you maybe for two hours. So that is an important thing to do. If the insurance company denies your claim, the first thing you do is you contact us because we will be able to assist you with this specific situation. Insurance companies should not be mandating to insurers what they what their treatment should be in the context of what we just discussed if you've tried you've been on antidepressants for various years you've tried lots of them didn't work you should not be placed in a position where you may have face side effects you know these side effects can be significant i have had clients who have tried various antidepressant medications where some of those medications resulted in them becoming suicidal resulted in them becoming much more depressed than that they were before I've also seen cases where people, and you have a significant, there's a portion of the population that just has a significant response, Mm. and it's a negative response to medications. It just does not work. So we have to take into consideration a person's personal circumstances and their medical makeup, their genetic makeup as to their response to these medications, and not take a be-all, end-all approach to this, that if you don't do this, that's what we're going to do. We live in the real world, and you have to consider every person's circumstances to see whether this particular medication is appropriate for this patient. And the past shows us, if a person has tried various medications and it didn't work, why then would they have to try something else, unless the doctor, the treating doctor, agrees? It's interesting, too, with that IME doctor. You mentioned, you know, this doctor saw you for two hours, and, and if that's the case... Was it, first of all, that's a small amount of time compared to the treating doctor. Number two, was it saw as in a Zoom chat? Because that's like, that's like online dating to you actually meet somebody in a restaurant. It's like, wow, not as advertised, right? Completely different person. It could be that case. Or sometimes it's a paper file. This independent medical doctor actually hasn't sat down in person with the, with the actual patient. They're just going by some written records. I think all those scenarios, uh, Martin, they're not going to hold water against your treating doctor, especially if it's been the treating doctor for years, and especially if it's a special that has been treating you. I don't see how the insurance company has a leg to stand on in that regard. It really becomes a fact-by-fact analysis, but I agree with the comments that you've just made. So if it is, there are two different things that may happen. There's the independent medical examination where the insurance company retains, they hire a doctor to give an opinion. The doctor is not an employee of the insurance company, so they send you to that person. You're right. It may be done by Zoom, which has its own limitations. Um, Or it may be a medical review, a clinical file review, where the insurance company 
has a in-house psychiatrist who then just reviews the clinical records, the consult reports, and we've spoken about this many times before, mm -hmm. where the doctor, may, your doctor may say, you cannot work, this is what I'm prescribing you. Their doctor then looks at it and says, I disagree that this person is disabled, even though they've never even met you. They've never right. laid eyes on right. you, ne let yep. alone sp spoken with you. So, but they do feel that they're in a position to comment on what your restrictions and limitations are, and more importantly, I've also seen ones where that doctor will say, well, considering that they're taking uh, this antidepressant medication at this low dosage, they're not being appropriately treated. And if it is as bad as they say it is, the medication should be adjusted. Again, making comments on the lives and medical conditions and treatment of people whom they've never even met. So I agree with you in the context of putting it in front of somebody, a third party, whose opinion is going to be accepted. You would think that it would be the person who has had the benefit of seeing, treating and uh, observing the insured for a number of years. The only co comment there as well is, is if a doctor becomes an advocate, in other words, if being very emphatic why this patient should be um, paid, then a, a third party says may look at it a little bit differently. But I understand why doctors do that. It has to be an objective opinion. And doctors will not be pushing medications on their patients if they do not think it is appropriate, especially in the context if they think it may actually make the condition worse. You know, and to your point, what you just, just mentioned there, Martin, before we move on is, you know, whether it's an in-house psychiatrist or other clinician or someone that they pay, or ooh, did I just say pay? That, you know, for you to go see, this is on the insurance company's dime, so you can draw your own conclusions in that regard as well, right? Yeah, it is a payment that is made, especially if the person is in-house. My, my big concern is, especially with these in-house assessments, it's not an assessment. It, they they <laughs> haven't met you. They haven't seen you. It is simply looking at clinical records. How do you? How on earth do you assess somebody's mental wealth being being a psychiatrist without ever having even seen the person? That is yeah. a big thing. This word assessment. Let's keep going down that road with our next email. It says, guys, functional assessment. The insurance company is requesting this of me. How should I proceed? I'm on LTD and have had and I have osteoarthritis and have had two surgeries and will require two more. I'm on pain meds and do daily exercises to help with pain and mobility. What do you think? Well, you know, when we speak about a functional assessment, the question before dealt with an independent medical examination, which was mm -hmm. done by a psychiatrist. Functional assessment tells me it's something called a, f a functional capacities assessment or a functional capacity examination, evaluation. So FCE, FCA would be the acronyms for this. What is it? And I always have a concern with these types of assessments. The reason being is it is you're going to show up at an office. There's going to be an occupational therapist or maybe a kinesiologist or some other person who's going to put you through a battery of tests where you're going to be deemed to sit down, maybe type, pick up a few things, walk around a little bit and doing a battery of various simulated tests to see whether that would lead your capacity to do those things would ultimately lead to your ability to work in a job. So my concern with these is, and I've seen this many times, the person shows up to attend the FCE. They have chronic back pain. Yet they're able to do it on the day because they're putting forth their best effort. The next day, they may not even be able to get out of bed. Huh. It may have taken weeks for them to recover from that particular effort to put through their best effort on that particular day. 
but the assessment is done on what the pers- what the assessor saw on that day. Yes, the person could sit for 40 minutes. Yes, they could do certain things. Therefore, it is now based on that assessment. Yes, they can go and work on a daily basis moving forward. That's my concern. It doesn't mean that there isn't a place for these types of assessments. Having said that, again, if you have, in this situation, osteoarthritis, which is a progressive illness, you've had two surgeries, will require two more. Clearly, the fact that more surgery is required means that this person is struggling. They're on chronic pain meds, and they do daily exercises just to keep their pain and, pain and mobility in place. Um, the question is, how do they proceed? I would say, number one, remember what we said before, under the terms of the policy, the insurance company has the right to have you assessed. Um, the policy provides for that. But it has to be an appropriate assessment. And if there is a concern here, and I've seen this before, that the functional capacity itself is going to lead to a worsening or a re-injury or an aggravation, that approach has to be taken extremely carefully. So how should you proceed? Go have a discussion with your doctor. Request the insurance company to provide to you in writing what is going to be done at this assessment, what is required of you. Present that to the doctor and then have the doctor review it and put in writing as to what the doctor thinks is reasonable. Most of these assessments do proceed. Um, as again, the insurance company may say, if you don't do this, then we're going to deny your claim because we have the right to assess you, which is reasonable. I, I accept that insurance companies can do assessments, but it has to be done on a reasonable basis. It has to be the appropriate assessment by an appropriate expert. And if it has the potential of worsening a person's condition, the approach has to be extremely carefully. And I would suggest that they should listen to the insu- the insureds, in other words, the plaintiffs, the, the person making the claim, to their doctor. I have had cases where a person suffers with chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalitis. These types of assessments cannot measure fatigue. They cannot measure pain. They have the potential, if you put a person who is living with those conditions through something like that, it has the real risk of leading to a flare-up or a setback which could last for months. We have successfully resisted assessments like that when I have the benefit of a doctor advising that this is not the way to proceed. And that's almost a whole different discussion whether FCEs are appropriate for people living with chronic fatigue syndrome or similar conditions because I think these assessments have limited value with respect to certain conditions. With others, maybe more so, but when you're looking at a disability claim, it's not just is the person able to do it on this day. It is, is the person able to continue to do it on a continuous basis in a work setting? And the concern is that there's no follow-up to see how the person fared once that assessment was done. If they were bedridden for the next two weeks, that should be part of the consideration, and it often is not. And with that, guys, want to slip into a quick break. Get back with more of Martin and more of your emails as well. That's help at disabilityrights.ca, mydisabilityquestions.com. To ask your questions through your uh, tablet, your uh, your cell phone, or your desktop for that matter, or you can make that phone call, just leapfrog right to getting a hold of Martin and his team. 1-855-821-5900. Stick around. Short break. More of the Disability Law Show is just ahead. Hang on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. 
All right, we are back. Disability Law Show. Martin Willems always ready to take your calls and emails even beyond the 60 minutes of this show. How do you do it? one 821 5900 Because sometimes you're going to want that private length of your conversation. We totally get that. So you can use the phone number or email help at disabilityrights.ca. Uh, this one's quick and simple, but a good question. Martin says, uh, Martin, is degenerative disc disease a pre-existing condition? I guess as it pertains to a, a policy, right? That's an interesting question, and you're right, it does must pertain to a policy. Um, we've spoken at length about pre-existing conditions. So what does that mean? Is degenerative disc disease a pre-existing condition in layman's terms? One would think so because it is something that is degenerative. As we age, we all have some degree of that in our spines, I would think. But in the context of a policy, a disability policy, be it an individual policy or a group policy. Remember what I said, Mm -hmm. these are contracts, they have terms and provisions and definitions. So pre-existing conditions often come up in the context of, if it's a, a group policy, if the person goes off work within the first year of having coverage, not from when they were employed, maybe the same date, but often isn't. For example, people may have a three month probationary period and then their coverage kicks in. If you go off work within the first year of having coverage, the vast majority of policies will provide that that triggers the pre-existing exclusion investigation. Pre-existing conditions are defined terms and policies. Each policy may have a different pre-existing condition definition. I'll use an example. There may be policies out there where it would state that if you had medical care for a condition that is directly or indirectly related to the disability that you now have during the first 90 days before you had coverage, then it is a pre-existing condition. In other words, if you have meant a mental health illness and you've been taking medications and seeing a doctor in relation to that during those 90 days before your coverage kicked in, and then you go off work within the first year because of your mental health, it might be deemed to be pre-existing. But if you had anxiety, depression for many, many, many years, therefore it is pre-existing in layman's terms. But during those first 90 days before your coverage kicked in, you did not receive any treatment. In other words, you were not taking prescription medications. You were not seeing a doctor. You were not seeing a psychiatrist. You were not doing counseling then it's not pre-existing in the example that I'm using. So I'm trying to help, especially doctors as well, divorce their minds from this notion that pre-existing condition means what it means in layman's terms. You have to look at what it says in the terms of the policy. And if it is pre-existing for every other purpose other than in this policy, then it is not pre-existing. Then the insurance company cannot deny your claim. We see cases like this all the time. And some of them we can assist, some of them the insurance company is correct, that it is a pre-existing condition, but nothing is black or white, there's always grey. It may be that the insurance company is denying the claim because the person did have a pre-existing condition with respect to their mental health, but there's also a physical component, which is not pre-existing. Then the question is, should the insurance company deny the claim? And my position on this would be, if the physical disability is disabling by itself, it doesn't matter that the mental health is pre-existing. Going back to this question, is degenerative disc disease a pre-existing condition? I would look at it in terms of what I've just described. Did you receive treatment for this condition 
during the, whatever that time frame may be that is defined in the policy. And if not, I would say it is not pre-existing. But we would want to know what the actual definition in the policy is and what the actual circumstances are. Because there are other policies that may speak about degenerative disc disease in the context of a, a policy where these conditions may not be paid or be, may not be covered entirely. And if that's the case, we would also want to have a look at the policy, the denial letter, and your personal circumstances, including the medical records. Again, it's uh, help at disabilityrights.ca. Moving on to our next email, it says, guys, would a GoFundMe campaign jeopardize long-term disability benefits? I'm on LTD uh, past, two, past the two-year mark, CPP disability, and medically retired. The purpose of the campaign would be to reimburse me for treatment costs and equipment slash renovations made do, uh, due to my health. My family, friends, and I have realized this is uh, most likely the best way to improve my quality of life and my illness. I could also hire my own home care. So basically, the money needed from the GoFundMe campaign can, is the uh, insurance company going to have a problem with that, Martin? What do you think? So I'm often asked by people phoning, should the insurance company pay me anything else other than my RTD benefits? Because there's an expectation that the insurance company should be paying for treatment, renovations, etc. Now, when you're dealing with a long-term disability policy, you obviously want to look at what that policy provides, but for the vast majority, these policies provide that the insurance company is liable, responsible in other words, to pay you a monthly long-term disability benefit if you meet the definition of total disability. They're not responsible to pay you for treatment, etc., unless they decide that it's in their interest to do so, then they may do it. Would a GoFundMe campaign jeopardize your entitlement to LTD benefits? I would cautiously want to say it shouldn't because the money that you may receive from that, if it is done in the context of paying for treatment costs, etc., it's not income per se. It's not income as is defined in the disability policy. So I don't think that should form an offset. What I would be careful about is how the GoFundMe campaign is run and the description of what they may give of you. Like, uh, I don't think it would be a harmful thing. I'm not, it's just, you want to be careful what you put out there online. We speak about surveillance quite often. Um, If it is described that you need these things, you need uh, contributions because you cannot afford your treatment. There may be renovations needed to your house because you may not be able to get into the bath, whatever it may be. Then, I don't see that there is any harm in it, but I would be very careful as to how to word the description for the GoFundMe page and how it is run and how public it is, I suppose. But I suppose that's the whole thing about it. It's public so that you can get money. Um, But I would think just be careful in the way that you word it. But it should, in general, uh, I don't think it shouldn't affect your LTD entitlement. And again, uh, you know, thank you for the email. If there's a problem, just give Martin a call and uh, send him over the policy. Let him have a look at uh, seeing the details if it's if it's going to be a problem for you. But uh, appreciate that email. One more uh, final uh, break, guys. We'll get into a couple more emails. In the meantime, reaching out afterwards, write this number down. Keep it one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. How you get a hold of Martin and the team and help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue more of the disability law show. A few minutes to go. Hang in there.
You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All right, we're back. Disability Law Show. A few minutes to go here. Martin Willems is your guide during after the show as well. one 821 5900, simple number to reach out to Martin and his team, help at disabilityrights.ca. And for a quick, easy to uh, digest, concise memos about LTD and everything in that world, ltdfaq.ca. You can use that as well. It's free, of course. Okay, scrolling down here, Martin. Next email says, guys, my uh, stepdaughter lives in Edmonton, Alberta. She is progressive MS. She is 44 and has been approved for AISH approximately $1,700 per month. However, her expenses are much higher. We're talking mortgage, medical, special needs, etc., etc., $3,000 per month. Uh, Does she have any options here? Okay, well, you know, often we see the situation when people have a disabling illness and, of course, all the the financial obligations are still in place they don't go away so the first thing that i see is there's an approval for h which is assistance by the government for one thousand seven hundred dollars per month um does she have options well if she has a if she did work before and she had group coverage that would be the first thing to do is does she have access to disability benefits be they short term and then long term or just long term so if there is an employer involved, definitely make sure that the application for LTD and STD short-term is submitted as soon as possible. If there is no coverage, in other words, if maybe she wasn't employed or if she was employed and there were no coverage, the only other thing that I can think of at this point is CPP disability benefits, which is paid by the federal government. Now, there may be an interaction or interplay, reintegration, I suppose, between the provincial benefit and the federal benefit. Um, but that is something to look into, whether there is, number one, coverage by an employer to have LTD or STD benefits. Number two, consider applying for CPP disability benefits. And number three, which is something that isn't in existence yet, but may become, and it looks like it will, at some point in the future, there's going to be something called the Canada Disability Benefit which we don't know exactly how that's going to be assessed yet. And we don't know what the criteria will require and how much it would be, but there will be, we think, in the future, um, within maybe the next two years, a new benefit being paid by the federal government. But that's all I can say about that. I don't have enough information. But that is something that will be available to people with disabilities, but we don't know what the criteria will be. All right, let's move on to our next email. It says, uh, I am on long-term disability for cancer treatment, which I completed May of this year, 2023. I also have a massive tear in my rotator cuff. Wondering if I go to work for a different company than the one I'm currently employed at, would it affect my long-term disability claim if I were incapable of working due to the effects of treatment and the rotator cuff damage? Also, would the rotator cuff tear qualify me for permanent disability if I were unable to perform the duties at work? Thank you very much. Interesting. Okay. So, a disability claim is much more focused on functional impairment than on the diagnosis itself. The diagnosis, of course, is important. So, if you have cancer and you've you've just completed the cancer treatment, we want to know, are there functional impairments as a result of that? For example, some people may have, I don't know what the treatment was, but there may be chemo brain 
which would be ongoing fatigue, difficulty, brain fog, difficulty to focus, concentrate, etc. So that's from a cognitive standpoint. If that is the situation, then the assessment is, can you perform your duties with those, with those symptoms in play? The other thing here is a more physical component, and that is you've got a massive tear in your rotator cuff. The question is, what does that mean? How does that restrict and limit you from performing the duties of your specific occupation? The question is, would that lead to a permanent disability? Well, are there treatments available? How would that impact you from performing your duties? If you were doing a desk job, um, I'm not saying that you cannot work with that, but we would want to know how that impacts you versus if you were to be doing a very physical labor-intensive job where you have to lift things on an ongoing basis, which obviously would really be a problem with that type of injury. Also, how would it affect you if you left, if you're on disability now, and if you did not return to your own employer, but to a different employer? And the question is, if I did that, how would it impact my entitlement to benefits if I found that I was unable to carry on doing my job because of these injuries and these restrictions and limitations. You have to be extremely careful here. Number one, we want to look at what that policy says with your current employer, not your future employer, your current employer, because your claim vested when you had been employed and you were employed by the current employer. So the assessment for disability is being done under the terms of this policy. Does this policy provide for something called a recurrence provision? If it does, does it require that you go back to your own employer or would it allow you to go back to a different employer? Also, what does that recurrence provision provide in terms of time? Most recurrence provisions provide that if you go back to work and if you become disabled again due to the same illness or condition within the first six months, then it is a recurrence of the previous claim. Think about the fact that if that is not available to you, and you do go to work for a different employer, and then after a period of time you find that you cannot work and you want to go off again, you may not be able to go back to the previous ins uh, insurer, in other words, the policy that you have with your previous employer. And if you want to make a claim under the new policy with your current employer, remember what I discussed about pre-existing conditions. If you go off work within the first year of having coverage, then that may very well be considered to be a pre-existing condition. So tread extremely carefully. Make sure that you get a copy of that policy to review and to see what the recurrence provision provides. And if you were to return to work for a different to a different employer, you want to make sure that the insurance company is aware of that because many policies do provide that if you go back to work for any employer in any setting, for any remuneration or profit, your benefits may terminate if it is not done under the um, under the provisions of a rehabilitation program. So long response, but a interesting question. I think what we should do here, and what I suggest to you is, get a copy of the policy, reach out to us, and then we can have a discussion as to what that means to you in terms of the various plans that you may have, so that you don't step into a trap here. 
A great hour. Thank you. Uh, appreciate you sending along all those emails. If we didn't get to yours, that's okay. Many sh- many more shows are ahead, so stay tuned next week as well. In the meantime, those emails will be answered regardless. Martin and his team are on top of those for sure. And you can always make the phone call as well anytime, one 855 may not be a consultation. Name, maybe just a quick chat or a question. You can use that number for all that. And that email address one more time, help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll catch you next time here on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.